You're listening to Joy Sounds, music you need to know. Hello everyone out there in podcast land. My name is Mark Kavin and it is a pleasure to be on the Joy Sounds podcast. And today we're going to be talking about punk music and music education, which are two topics that obviously go very, very well together. I say that facetiously because my hope is by the end of this podcast, once you hear what I have to say, once you hear from our guests, you may think about punk music a little bit differently and how it could be really valuable in music education and in curriculum in schools. Before I continue on, just to give you a little context of who I am, again, my name is Mark. I am a I'll call it a final semester graduate student. Actually, by the time that you hear this podcast, I will have received my degree from the University of Southern California in arts leadership. It's a master's program focused on nonprofit administration, arts leadership, looking at how to provide arts experiences in more of a scholastic setting, or just to approach the leadership of arts nonprofits in a little bit of a different way. So it's been a really rewarding program. One of the focuses I've had in my program is on music teaching and learning. And the program here at USC has just been so valuable in showing me how to think about music education differently, what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, and maybe how to improve it in the future. And when I was approaching scheduling my final semester of classes, I came across this class called Popular Music Teaching. And of course, for someone who was not as super well-versed in popular music, my thoughts went to, oh, pop music, like looking at the artists who are popular today and how to incorporate that into the classroom. And once I got into the classroom and I found out we were talking about jazz and hip-hop and rock and R&B and some of these more traditional style of musics as I perceived them to be, but you know, looking back, seeing the progression of the styles of music that could be incorporated, I found it so intriguing and interesting to start thinking about popular music teaching and how those can be incorporated into nonprofits and to the arts. So it was a happy accident to be given this class. I have to give so much credit to Chris Sampson and of course to the amazing cohort of fellow students and peers that I have in the classroom that have just brought such incredible experience and perspective and value. So I definitely want to take this opportunity to just say a quick thank you to all of them and hopefully they have an opportunity to listen to this episode as well. So how did we get here? How did we get to talking about punk music education? Which again, very foreign, at least to me. Uh, my training was in instrumental music. I was a saxophone player in middle school and high school, did a little bit in college, participated in nonprofit arts organizations focused on drum and bugle corps and other marching arts ensembles. And so punk music isn't something that I'm super familiar with. But as we were going through the class, as many do, we had to do a midterm paper. And in that midterm paper, we had an opportunity to choose a topic and gravitate toward a subject in popular music teaching that intrigued us and wanted us to dig a little bit more into how certain topics and music genres could be incorporated into music teaching and learning. So I started doing some digging and I knew I wanted to focus on rock music of some kind. And as I started doing more research, I kept seeing punk music popping up everywhere. And as I started digging, something started to click with me about maybe there's something here. Maybe punk music can and maybe even adds more value to what is already incorporated into music education. And then I started to look at, well, how do these musicians learn? What are the learning practices, whether they're informal or formal? How do they identify themselves? How did they get to be punk musicians? 
how did they find punk music to be a vehicle for advocacy and fighting social norms, but also just a way to enjoy the performance and enjoy the music that they're writing and producing. And once we figured out the what and the why of punk music, then it's the how. How do we incorporate punk music into music education so that it's effective and it's valuable for not only the students, but also for the teachers who are bringing this into the classroom? So here we are. Hope you're ready. Let's dive in. Now we're talking about education, and in education, there's always a teacher of some kind and there's always a student of some kind. So for the purposes of this podcast, I wanted to make sure that we got the perspective of each of those viewpoints. So today, we're going to be talking to an expert in teaching and education, and we're going to be talking to a student of rock and punk music. Our expert educator is Brian Powell, who is the current assistant professor of music education and music technology at Montclair State University. And prior to joining MSU, he was also the director of higher education for Little Kids Rock. So here's our interview. Uh, So my full-time gig is I work at Montclair State University. I'm an assistant professor of music education and music technology, uh, which means I work with pre-service music teacher educators and I oversee the music technology classes that we teach. We're also in the process of creating a music production um, uh, called Recording Arts and Music Production Bachelor's mm-hmm. Degree, and uh, that's in the pipeline being reviewed by the state uh, currently, and that's um, hopefully going to start soon. The goal there being that we have a place for people who want to be music producers working in studios, uh, live sound DJs, uh, people associated with the poverty music education mm-hmm. industry, uh, to be able to, to have an opportunity for uh, those students to come to Montclair State and uh, connect with the work that we do. Prior to joining Montclair State, I worked for a number of years for the nonprofit organization Little Kids Rock. I still work with Little Kids Rock, just not full time. Mm-hmm. And we do workshops with uh, college uh, professors, K-12 teachers, sometimes community organizations, uh, focusing on how we can incorporate popular music education into school settings. We use the term modern band because sometimes popular music might scare some people. Uh, right. Because, you know, and oftentimes the music that we do isn't actually currently popular in the sense of thinking about popular music. So uh, we uh, propagate modern band programs providing uh, professional development for teachers, many of whom don't have skill sets in uh, playing popular music in bands before, but are interested in bringing that into the classroom. So giving them the tools to be able to facilitate those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Cool. And from your perspective, what's the value of bringing in modern rock or popular music into a more traditional music setting where we're relying on more classical styles of music or styles and genres that educators are really comfortable with? Like, what's the value of breaking that paradigm a little bit and bringing in something new and kind of out there, I guess, to some people. Yeah, I think there are a lot of benefits. Um, the the kind of most obvious for me is that our bands, choirs, and orchestras are working well with the students who are participating in those programs. Uh, but we have research and data that shows that maybe that's 20% of the students in a high school, for example. In a lot of yeah. high schools, it's less than that. And so you have all of these other students who are probably into music. They like listening to music. They like sharing music. But then they look at, I'm a trombone player, and they look at playing the trombone or the clarinet and thinking, well, 
why would I want to do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so if we're interested in getting more students uh, participating in school music programs, diversifying what we're doing, adding technology, adding popular music, adding popular music ensembles and modern bands is one way that we can kind of increase participation, we can increase diversity, uh, we can honor the students' musical uh, preferences and identities. So there's a lot of... Um, power and connecting there and you know the, these are students who unlike myself who was a a, a digital uh, immigrant and not a digital native these are students who have grown up with you know streaming services many of them and they have recording studios in their pockets at all times and so um, there's a relevancy issue with with traditional approaches to music education that for a lot of students they just look at it and they say well that's not the thing that I want to do because they want to you know they've grown up experiencing music and sharing music and doing beat making and recording. Um, they can record their own songs if they want. So uh, in some ways, uh, providing these opportunities in ensembles is widening that door to music participation to get more of these students in the music, uh, the music building, so to speak. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the work that I was looking at and researching, you know, obviously value in connecting education to people's interests and people, what they want to study, what they're interested in, what music they like. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious to just speak out loud that people are more interested in learning about things that they already enjoy. <laughs> but and that and that outside of education, that sounds like the most obvious statement in the world. It's like, well, right. of, of course, you know, if if you're using something that people are interested in, they're going to be more interested in doing it. I mean, it's just like it's so obvious. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we uh, because of tradition and. Um, the way we've always done things and the way we were trained to do things, we, we, we miss that sometimes in the music education profession. Yeah. Well, now there's two individuals on this podcast who have said that out loud. So now it is recorded and out there for the world. Uh, and, and we fixed it. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll never be a problem. Our work is done. Our work is done. Exactly. Uh, I'm also really interested in how punk music could provide a new perspective to music education or just bring something else of value. So thinking more specifically about the genre, one area that interested me was obviously as you look into punk music and you start to define what it is, there's a lot of there's a lot of activism behind it. There's a lot of themes of, you know, anti-education. There's a lot of themes of you know, fighting the the power and all these other things. So just from your perspective and looking at punk music, you know, where's what is it bringing to the table versus maybe just traditional rock music or just other music education that's already existing? Yeah, uh, and you touched on some of the points there, and I also think that we can look at punk um, aesthetic, it, so not just the music, um, yeah. but, but the kind of punk aesthetic, uh, and I think that there is a lot of uh, overlap there, and, and kind of coincidentally, my uh, friend Gareth Dylan smith and I uh, Gareth's done a lot on punk pedagogies. We had just written this thing about kind of popular music, modern band in K-12 settings and punk. Um, and so looking at this kind of punk aesthetic around, um, you know, it's often DIY. So uh, the, the punk aesthetic is a DIY aesthetic. Punk music is DIY music. It's not overly produced. Uh, and modern band in the classroom, in its best sense, is kind of, it takes on this DIY aesthetic, mm -hmm. looking at, you know, students being responsible for creating their own uh, knowledge, them choosing the music, them figuring out the arrangement. 
Um, it's kind of the opposite of some approaches to school music, which can focus on, you know, here's your part, read this, you know, read your part here, and then you're going to reply to that part because uh, other people have different parts, and you're given the thing that you're going to do. Um, whereas in this punk aesthetic, it's it's very DIY. It does bring in, um, you know, kind of these uh, rebellion against uh, structural, uh, the social structures, and there can be some power there. And so it's not necessarily um, anti-education, but this idea of like, you know, like not not being a fool or, or, or not just taking things that are handed to you and being critical mm. of power structures. And one of the things that we've been, um, you know, talking about in the modern people who are in, involved in the modern band movement is this idea of, um, you know, not just necessarily playing pop tunes because they're fun to play in the classroom, but using this, uh, the presence of popular music in schools as a vehicle to take on things that are going on in society. And so, um, you know, engaging, like writing protest music or taking on issues of like Black Lives Matter or using mm -hmm. modern band in the classroom to actually engage meaningfully in the things that are going on uh, uh, in society as opposed to just, um, you know, kind of replicating Eagles and Beatles and Rolling Stones tunes yeah. and whatever. Um, and so I think that there's kind of that, that aesthetic uh, as well, um, and that can come from attacking systems, but also attacking like power structures and not. And sometimes, you know, uh, punk and, and, and traditional schooling can be problematic for sure. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of living in that um, in that space and that negotiation, I think is uh, is a positive thing. And then, if we look at punk, you know, early punk music, like three chords and the truth. Um, that kind of resonates well. It's like, all right, my students learned a couple chords, now let's play some songs, let's write our own songs, let's do mm -hmm. a lot with that knowledge. And so, uh, in some ways, the kind of simple, simplicity and straightforwardness of punk uh, music itself can be a, a nice analogy to like just taking these small building blocks and then doing really cool things with them. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the aesthetic part of punk because, you know, just a little background about me for those listening and for you, Brian, as well. You know, I'm uh, graduating with my arts leadership degree, my master's degree from University of Southern California, but my other professional life is I work in admissions for the College of Letters, Arts and Sciences. So looking at the liberal arts and seeing these themes connected to the aesthetics of not just the music that punk, punk produces, but the topics that they engage in and the ways that they kind of interpret the world around them. I can see so many parallels between taking on issues of psychology, sociology, international relations, political science, like all these different areas that can provide some additional value to what you're bringing into the classroom just by looking at the history of punk and looking beyond the music about what the context it is that it really exists in. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I don't have much to add. I don't know if I could have said it better than that. But um, uh, it, yeah, and, it, and it's interesting again with with ideas of empowerment and taking on um, important issues of society. And in this paper that I, I mentioned previously, we talk about how you know in some ways modern band exists on both uh, ends of the ideological spectrum. You know, it's kind of disrupting the status quo. It's empowering students ideally, uh, but it's also kind of coming into a, a an educational system and trying to recreate what's already there as far as like it's a course and it's taught by a teacher and you get a grade for it and so um you know and that's one of the fun things about punk is sometimes you know like doing the thing that's not expected of you is totally punk and so going into a school yeah. system to disrupt there like it's that can be a very punk act while you're still kind of becoming part of the system that you're trying to rebel against so kind of figuring out um 
how to exist in that cognitive dissonance is something we talk about in that paper. For those educators that might be considering incorporating modern or popular music into the classroom that perhaps haven't done it before, don't have a lot of context for it, any advice or pieces of information that are helpful for them to kind of get the process started that from your perspective and from your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, great question. So one uh, is, you know, j just get started. Uh, sometimes we think about like, well, I would do this thing, but I need uh, a, a new backline and I've got to get a period in my schedule that's open and I've got to, you know, figure these things out. Um, mm. Those those things might all be true that those things need to happen. Uh, but think about like, okay, well, what can I do this coming semester, whether it's like an after school like guitar club or a music technology thing or my students are, or, or just, you know, or bringing that into the, the current space in the classroom is figure out how you can just do something this coming semester that you haven't done the previous semester to get started. It took me five years to build my property music ensemble in East Harlem to the place where I was like, okay, cool. We've got amps and then. drum kits and, and these sort of resources. Um, number two, give yourself permission to understand that you don't need to be the expert. Uh, in order to facilitate these opportunities. And so if you're doing like a rap um, uh, collective or hip hop collective, or you're trying to do pop music and you're like, but I'm not a great guitar player or I don't play drum kit, you don't necessarily need to be the expert in the classroom to facilitate those opportunities. There's a power in sitting alongside your students as mm -hmm. a co-learner um, and saying, hey, I'm not great at this, but I'm gonna be learning alongside you. And I think the most important piece of advice is start with a conversation with your students. It seems obvious, but sometimes we as teachers sort of like, well, I'm gonna do this popular music ensembles that, that, that's gonna connect to students and I'm gonna do this. And, I, and we start thinking about like what we are gonna do. Um, and maybe that's actually disconnected from the thing that our students wanna do. So maybe my students mm -hmm. don't wanna be Maybe they don't want to play punk music. Maybe they don't want to be in a rock band, but maybe they would rather do music technology and beat making things and, and use that version of popular music as the vehicle through which they're going to express themselves. And so before we get too far down the road thinking about what we, the teacher, are going to do to incorporate these things, let's start by having that conversation with our students. What are their goals for the class? What would they like to do? If music class could look like anything, what would the student like um, want it to look like? And then that's going to be a driving um, you know, force for you that everything you're doing is in connection to the goals of the students, uh, not just because that's what we as a teacher think the students might be into. So, um, yeah. you know, start somewhere. Uh, don't You don't have to be the expert to do it. And then, you know, bring your students along as co-creators of this experience. I, I think those are kind of my, my three big points that I would lean in, lean in on. A big thanks to Brian Powell for his perspective on incorporating popular music into the classroom. But now it's time to look at how that is actually being put into practice in an actual educational setting. So I have Daniel Flores joining me to talk a little bit about his educational journey, but not only that, to dig into a little bit of what his influences are, how he got started with music, and how that's been reflected in his time at the University of Southern California. And it wouldn't be a good music podcast episode without you hearing some tunes. So here's a little bit of Daniel Flores' music. This track is called Spend a Second. And right after, you'll hear from the man himself. Yeah. 
Alright, so yeah, my name is Daniel Flores. I am currently a music production major here at USC. Um, I'm a sophomore. My path was a little weird. I uh, started out as a music industry major. I decided I didn't like that. I took mm -hmm. a gap year. I applied to music production. So I just started uh, music production this year. Nice. But I'm a little older than everyone else in my class, which confuses everyone. a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I really like writing songs. I like producing out my own songs. I like recording live instrumentation. I think that's something that's pretty sick. Yeah. And yeah, as far as like my, my musical influences go, my favorite genre of music is actually metal. Nice. Um, I love punk rock. I love pop punk. I have a soft spot for like some pop, like some of the radio pop that goes on right now. Like yeah, yeah. Olivia Rodrigo's last album. I'm like, I, I love that. Really good. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really good. One of the things that we're kind of talking about is punk rock musicians kind of like how they got started where they picked up their influences from how they learned and then applying that to what might look like music education and kind of bringing those into get into place so to start with how did you get started with music what were your influences and kind of the practices you went through to start picking up your craft okay so let's start back at the very beginning i think when around when i was maybe five or six years old um we didn't, I grew up in a pretty uh, like morally conservative Christian household, okay. uh, and we listened to a lot of like like praise and worship, like church music. But my dad had this one CD uh, by a band called the Aquabats. There, a Scott. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, very you know. familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the Aquabats. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite bands. They were actually my first concert that I ever saw. It was a great experience. Excellent. Yeah. So. Uh, for people who don't know, they're the uh, kind of a ska band. Not really anymore, but back in the day, they were a ska band were. back in the 90s. And he had this uh, the CD, The Fury of the Aquabats. You know mm -hmm. the one. I do. And we just listened to that all the time in the car if it wasn't like uh, like a Christian hit radio. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that CD so much. It was like the greatest thing ever to me. Mm -hmm. So that got me interested in like writing songs. But it was like writing songs the way they do it with their like goofy storytelling. Like not really... Not really like conventional songwriting, like it. It just wasn't like very serious topics. You know right. what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like writing songs like "The Cat with Two Heads" mm -hmm. or "Martian Girl." Like it's just very silly storytelling. So I got very interested in that, and I started writing a lot of stories. I picked up guitar when I was maybe a lot later, like I was thirteen years old, and I immediately just started getting interested in writing songs. That was all I wanted to do. So this is where I started kind of producing. After a year of playing guitar, I was I started thinking I want to learn to. Uh, like kind of make my own songs start to finish. So I yeah. learned drums. I picked up bass guitar a little bit and I grabbed my computer. I downloaded Audacity uh -huh. and I just started making songs and they sounded like crap. <laughs> you got to start somewhere though. Yeah, right? no, no, like my recording techniques were very questionable. I had this electric drum kit. I would plug into a PA system in my bedroom and then I would stick my laptop microphone right next to the speaker mm -hmm. and I'd record that and I'd be like, music. Perfect. <laughs> Highest quality possible. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of where I got started. Um, eventually, uh, I think I started kind of getting out of that mold a little bit. Um, I always knew I kind of like heavier, like more guitar driven music. And my cousin had just been to this uh, Christian concert and he got back to me and was like, dude, you got to check out this band. They're called Flyleaf and mm -hmm. they have like a lot of guitars in their music. So I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And it was the first time I'd heard heavy music. Hmm. Like, like uh, to give you a uh, more, they were like heavier Paramore. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Sure. So I was like, this band is really cool. And I kind of started falling down that hole of like Christian metal. Hmm. So I got into that scene, but I started getting more into like 
eventually heavier and heavier bands and I started really listening to a lot of metal and then my taste diverged I also started listening to a lot of pop punk so I got into like Blink-182 Green Day yeah kind of some deeper cuts Reliant K Yellow Car yeah that was kind of so I started learning those songs on guitar and I just kind of started leveling up my recording techniques getting better and better eventually I learned hey maybe acoustic drums sound better than electric drums yeah and I started eventually saving up, buying a lot of recording gear, and eventually I started getting some pretty good sounding recordings. That's kind of how I got interested in like music production. I think my heart's always been in songwriting, though. I think that's kind of my main passion and yeah. kind of what I really want to focus on studying here at USC. Love it. Writing songs, placing songs, stuff like yeah. that. So yeah, that's kind of how I got my start. That's awesome. Uh, I, I really love the progression of genres and styles that you kind of bounce through, but there's mm. this through line of common instrumentation mm -hmm. and vibe and atmosphere. I think that's really cool. I want to back up and kind of touch on, you know, you said you learned guitar and bass and drums. Did you do that just all like informally on your own? Did you like take lessons? Like how did you start picking up those instruments? Okay, so guitar, I tried to pick up when I was 10, didn't really work out. It was mostly like my dad trying to teach me a little bit because he plays a little bit of guitar. Okay, nice. um, Didn't really stick, so I gave up on that for a few years. And then in 2013, this video game called Rocksmith came out. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know, Rocksmith is like Guitar Hero, but with a real guitar. Ooh. It's a really, it was a really cool video game. and. That made it more fun for me to learn, I think. So I picked up guitar. My bro my older brother picked up the bass guitar through that game, and then mm -hmm. kind of would just like switch off from time to time. Nice. But it was kind of we gravitated more. He was more into like just kind of like being in the background, being like the locked in rhythm, mm -hmm. and I liked being out in front. Yeah. So we picked up our respective instruments there. So that's how I learned guitar. And then from there, like after a while, the video game, like I kind of progressed past the need for it. Needed to learn more techniques, more chords, stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I progressed past the game. I just mostly self-taught myself by learning songs through guitar tabs or by ear if I could. Right. Um, not until, it was not until I started music production here because lessons were a necessary part of the curriculum that I started receiving informal training on guitar. Uh, drums, I taught myself for uh, maybe about a year and a half and then I started taking lessons. It took, took me going through a few instructors to find someone who st stuck but I ended up playing, uh, I ended up taking online drum lessons from the drummers of one of my favorite bands at the time. His name is Joey West. He plays in a, in a Christian metal band called Disciple. Nice. And I, I think they're really cool. Yeah. Like really great songwriting, really great instrumentation arrangements. That really made me excited about it. He taught me like basically all like the hard rock and metal drumming that I needed to know. So like my drumming is very rooted in that style. Yeah. And honestly, all my playing is written in that style. So even if I start making something that's more pop, it kind of ends up like I show it to people and they're like, oh, I can tell you listen to metal from listening to this. And I'm like, uh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. And so as part of my research and kind of looking at this whole topic, it was certainly really heavily influenced by informal practices. People were just picking mm -hmm. things up, learning by ear. Uh, it's really interesting to hear that that's sort of how you started. And then mm -hmm. to supplement that, obviously you kind of went to more like formal training, but it was still grounded in this, like, let's figure it out for myself and see what I like, see how it works. And then kind of incorporating it into your songwriting. Very much. Yeah. yeah. Now looking at your time at USC, cause now you are really heavily learning and developing your craft in more of an educational setting. One of the topics and one of the areas that has been really interesting to me is trying to incorporate popular music, rock, punk, into more traditional educational settings. So based on the music you're producing and the types of music you gravitate toward, do you see the value of those genres in a place that maybe doesn't always celebrate or always incorporate those genres into education? I mean, I think there's always something to be learned. 
from watching musicians from any genre who are clearly proficient on their mm-hmm. instruments, clearly proficient in songwriting, clearly doing something right yeah. to gain commercial appeal, right? Mm. So I think there's a lot to be learned. Well, kind of starting with like punk, pop punk, emo, which is still a very big part of what I listen to and what I make. Um, there's a lot to be learned from songwriting techniques there. I remember I was talking with a friend of mine about uh, modes. We were just talking about modes and music theory. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm not really understanding why we would use this. And I was thinking about this band I really love called Tiny Moving Parts. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the uh, Dylan, the their guitarist and main songwriter, thought about this from a theory standpoint or if he just did it naturally. Mm-hmm. But one of the techniques they employ a lot um, they tend to write in they write in Lydian a lot and they play in this open tuning that centers around an A chord but they'll write in D Lydian so it's kind of like writing in A major but you never really resolve to A oh, interesting. and it leaves for like a really bright sounding mode it actually leaves a lot of tension mm. in the music Okay. so like when you listen to their songs a lot of their songs don't resolve like the way uh, the way like a typical pop song or yeah, like that you would expect. going to classical theory like it's not like 5-1 you know mm-hmm. or 4-1 or 1-5 I mean that's less resolution yeah. but like you get what I mean <laughs> I right? Did, yeah. Like it's less resolved and it creates to me this really cool effect like I employ that all the time if I want to tell a story in a song that doesn't have like a that doesn't resolve which personally I think is really fun to do mm-hmm. um, I'll end on with some dissonance with yeah. that I just think about like oh how would Dylan from Tiny Moving Parts do this and I listen to their songs and I see how they kind of leave that tension it's kind of like ending on a bridge the bridge serves to bring a lot of tension into the song before you kind of climax on that last chorus right but it's like instead ending on that tension can be a really cool effect that's something that I employ a lot in my song right yeah well it brings something unique to the table right mm-hmm. it kind of differentiates yourself from what else is out there right yeah so right before you came on to talk we played a snippet of your song called Spend a Second uh, which I really really enjoyed but I just wanted to see if you could connect some of the things that you've been talking about to the songwriting process for that song specifically like what did you draw on was there anything that was really important to you to make sure it was incorporated in the song just you can kind of just talk it out so uh again i was talking about the band tiny moving parts before um that song is uh where i've started with that song that song is in uh open a over d tuning which is the same tune i was talking about earlier that tiny moving parts uses a lot and i started with that open tuning this was one of the first songs i wrote in that tuning okay i was really going for that feel of tension non-resolution one of the cool things about that song Lyrically, like I was mentioning earlier, the story, the narrative that the song tells ends kind of on a half resolution. It's like appreciation, but at the same time regret. So I think it's cool. The song doesn't really end to me on a proper resolution. Like, you know, it doesn't end on a one chord. Yeah. And I have to think about it now. I think it ends on a two chord. Because when I was when I write in this open tuning, I'm not often thinking about theory, especially because I wrote this song a while ago before I was taking sure, theory. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. The message of the song is, like, hey, like this girl is always on my mind. What the heck, you know? Like, <laughs> the, to put it bluntly, it's like pretty simple theme. Yeah, yeah, like you're always on my mind. Can't get away from you. Can't stop thinking about you. And it's like, hey, things ended poorly. I'd like to do it again, but hey, I appreciate the times we had. Yeah, and that's why it kind of ends on thinking about the verse progressions. You know, it starts out in this kind of sad progression, and then the last verse, it kind of picks up a little bit kind of it doesn't modulate to major but it does mm-hmm. like you start feeling more uplifted towards the end 
So like that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to take from again Tiny Moving Parts, one of my biggest influences songwriting. I wanted to take from them, you know, an uplifting sound, but it still doesn't resolve. Mm-hmm. There's still tension. Yeah, and that's something that I think a lot of um, songwriters who kind of draw from punk, pop punk, do. We never think about like it's not our first thought is never oh how can we use theory to communicate what sure, we want. We sure, think sure. about like hey how did Blink do this? Mm. How did Green Day do this? You know stuff like that. And I think that's that's something that Chris actually talks about a lot in his songwriting classes, emulation. Like, how do we emulate what the great songwriters of the past did? A lot of case study, like, on the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's something that, like, in the end, it's kind of punk rock. You know, like, taking something that someone else did, making it your own. Absolutely. So, going back to kind of one of your original questions, like, what's the value of including uh, other genres in, in a like genres that aren't necessarily mentioned a lot in music education i think the value is you can take from like maybe you listen to like a punk song or but no just talking about any genre that like you can look at it and you can get something from that genre like hey they communicated this emotion really well like you look at traditional like hymns Mm -hmm. that are written four part uh written four part harmony and like that's something that you know i don't think we see a lot of that in modern music but it's really cool and I think there's a value in learning how to do that. How did they do that? So that if I want to, I can pull that out of my bag of tricks and I can put that in whatever song I'm working yeah. on. And like you can juxtapose that into like an R&B song and suddenly it's like, whoa, you have this really cool effect. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, yeah, just I would love for people to check out the EP that I put out earlier this year. It's called Closure under the artist named Crunchy Eskimo. Um, and I am planning on putting out some metal music under a different name. Sweet. So, but yeah, if anyone's listening that would like to check that out, you can just follow me on Instagram at Daniel Makes Sounds. And as we wrap up this episode, I just want to make clear that this podcast episode is meant to just be a start. It's just a jumping off point for educators and musicians who really find the value of punk music or maybe didn't even consider the value of punk music in music education. And I'm hoping that this podcast episode may open up some eyes and ears to what kind of value that might bring. You know, there's really no doubt that the work to be done is far greater than the work that's already been completed. And if you are an educator out there with the avenues and access to start incorporating punk music into music education, maybe, just maybe, this episode gave you some ideas on how to get started. And also based on what you've heard today, I think it's clear what the value really is. You're capturing a whole new segment of students, students who love punk music, who will finally see a place where their genre of choice is being validated. And not only that, connecting music teaching to those instruments that are so popular in punk music like guitar and bass and drums will definitely encourage more students to explore learning these instruments and maybe even growing their own opportunities for music education. And like I said earlier, the connection punk music has to societal issues and advocacy also presents a really unique opportunity to engage in important discussions around other liberal arts disciplines that you learn in schools like history and political science, philosophy, psychology. It gives music a whole different dimension. Punk music can help confront roadblocks of racism and sexism and other negative stereotypes in music by really allowing for freedom of expression and exploration for students. Prioritizing the values of punk music and culture rather than focusing on the hesitations that exist surrounding the implementation of new music pedagogy like this accomplishes the most fundamental goal of education, to learn, to challenge, to take risks, and to create something new. There's so much to look forward to with the progression of popular music education, and I for one can't wait to see it. 
So with that, I'm signing off for now. Thanks for listening.